0: Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Luke's Gospel chapter 5 as we continue moving through the book of Luke together on Sunday morning. We've made our way as far as verse 1. Let's read it together and take a look at it. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake... But the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of those boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to pour out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the other partners in the other boats to come and to help them, and they came and filled the boats, both with boats, and they began to sink." But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, for they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land... They left everything and followed him. We've been with Jesus now through chapter 4 as he was in Nazareth and he opened the scroll and declared to all that were listening there in Nazareth that he identified and fulfilled the prophecy given in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 concerning the coming of the Messiah. Then he went on and his public ministry began. He traveled south from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee to the region of Capernaum, which was at the northeast uh, end of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh The Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It is not a saltwater sea, which some uh, gather by its name. It is actually a lake. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. It has many names uh, given to it because at different times it was called different things. It's a a big lake, uh, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide in its greatest width, and believe it or not, 1,200 feet deep. Very, very deep lake. Beautiful region. Jesus did most of His teaching and miracles in the region of Galilee because at that time it was one of the most densely populated areas in all of Israel. For there were 2 million people in the various 200 cities and villages in the Galilean region and as a result he was able to speak to a uh, large number of people over a short period of time and the news of him arriving and coming had spread like wildfire throughout the whole entire country because of the just simple number of people in in the area of Galilee. And last week we were introduced to Simon, who we also know as Peter, for Simon asked the Lord while at his mother-in-law's house to heal his mother-in-law. She was gravely ill. Jesus did so, and she immediately got up and served the people, showing them, demonstrating that she was fully healed of the affliction in which she had. Now Luke brings our attention, especially to his initial reader, the individual Theophilus, who we find in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. He wants to introduce Peter to Theophilus. Uh, And so he does it in this way, in parallels Mark 1, Matthew 4, uh, and so forth, and lets his reader know this is how Jesus was introduced to Peter. There are some scholars who believe that Matthew's account in chapter 4 and Mark's account in chapter 1 were actually separate incidences because of some of the verbiage that is used by Matthew specifically. I'm not fully convinced that that's the truth based on the exegetical evidence, but we do know that he met Jesus at this time and in this fashion because all the accounts are very similar in nature. But that being said, it was the moment in which apparently Peter discovered that Jesus was the Messiah. He initially calls him Master, which is a very interesting term. There are several Greek words that could be used for Master and we use the word Master in our English translations to uh, translate each one of those three words, but all three of those words in Greek mean something different. For example, it can be master the the way that it is used here, Ecclesiastes, which simply means one who is a boss, one who um, is a chief, one who is, uh, you know, popular and so forth. There was also a master if you were in servanthood to, uh, servitude to him, and that had a different Greek name. And then there was kurios, which is of course the word for Christ, and we also get the idea of master from that. So the word master in the English can be somewhat misleading. But here Luke specifically, again trying to communicate certainty to Theophilus, his, or his initial reader, starts out using the word master here in a general term and then defines it as Lord Kyrios at the end of it. And the events that took place in between those two acknowledgments of Jesus appear to be the essence and the focus of what Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus and to you and I today. It is Peter's call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are now introduced to him. It was morning... For the fishermen would fish all night and then they would come in the early dawn as the sun was rising and they would come out and they would take their nets and they would clean their nets and they would prepare their nets for the following evening's fishing. And it was one of those things that if you are a contractor, or you're in you know, uh, construction or plumbing or a contractor, I guess it all would work to be the same. You understand rolling out and rolling in, you know? you know. You're rolling out all your tools and bring them all back in, and once you bring them all back in, you're like, oh, I forgot to you know, do that, and you have to roll them all back out again. It's, it's a pain, and the fishermen certainly didn't want to do it. It meant the end of day for them. And while they are there at the edge of the Sea of Galilee washing their nets, preparing their nets for the following day, an enormous crowd had gathered to hear Jesus teach that morning. And while the people are gathered, and while Jesus is looking now to begin to address them and begin to teach, and we don't know what he taught them at this time, we don't know what he said to them at this time, because the focus is on an individual, one-on-one interaction between Peter and Jesus. And as they are Listening, undoubtedly, to Jesus, he sees the throngs of people start pushing in on him. And so seeing that Simon's boat and another boat were close by, Jesus asks and gets into Simon's boat and asks just to be pushed off a little ways from the shore, almost creating a natural amphitheater there with the shoreline, allowing all to hear him but yet not being, you know, pressured and pushed upon and enclosed upon by the numbers of the crowds that were enthronging upon him. Interesting in that culture, I I wish it was something that we could bring back today, the teachers sat, and those who were listening to the teachings stood. We're going to start that next Sunday. We're going to take out all the chairs and put one up here. (laughs) And they did this for a reason. Uh, And I was reading through some of the historians. This was to help people not to fall asleep during the message. So we have decided that, you know, we believe in grace. And so if you are able to stay awake, you can keep your chair. (laughs) If you fall asleep, Pastor Joe has been instructed to remove the seat from underneath you. And you will not get it back until you stand for five services in a row. We hate to exercise church discipline that way, but sometimes we feel it's necessary. As he's getting into the boat, he first asks Peter just to push off just a short distance from the shoreline, and Peter does so. And Peter undoubtedly is sitting there listening with Jesus in the boat to the teaching and as he's speaking to the varieties of people that are pushing in upon him for his popularity was growing exponentially each and every time he appeared in public. And as Peter is listening to him, let us understand that the Jewish people at that time had a very, very distinct understanding and created profile of who they believed Messiah would be and look like when he arrived. And if I could sum it up for you very simply, I would have to say that they considered the Messiah to be more of a political figure than anything else by this time. And so let us imagine, if we will, that Peter's in this boat with this rabbi, this individual teaching, who people are now starting to wonder, they're starting to become a buzz about him. Could he simply be the one that they've been waiting for and anticipating? But through Peter's eyes, he's looking at him like a politician, Okay? We know all about politics in Illinois, don't we? In fact, we have mastered on what not to do when it comes to politics. In fact, our governorship has one of the uh, most uh, elaborate retirement plans ever. Uh, A one-room cell, three (laughs) meals a day. But we can imagine Peter's thinking as we are, are listening and reading this account that Luke is giving us. And if this is the second or possibly third time, if you consider John one forty-one, third third time that Peter has heard him, in each of the following uh, encounters Peter went back to fishing again. It wasn't enough to impress upon him to do anything differently. And so as a result, Peter now may be listening to him for the third time. I think there's I guess it's possible, but I'm not fully convinced that we are talking about three different occasions, but I throw that out there because some consider it that way. But that being said, Peter now is listening intently to what Jesus is saying. And then after Jesus finishes the teaching portion, he concentrates on the individual sitting next to him in the boat, or standing next to him in the boat, Peter. And he asks Peter, Now listen, I want you to go out just a little bit farther to the deeper regions of the Sea of Galilee. Now remember we had talked about 1,200 feet depths. And I want you to cast out your nets. And I think it's important, though, that we look back at our text uh, again because Simon's reaction to this is absolutely uh, perfect. Verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. (laughs) Historians tell us that Simon was a big guy, Simon Peter. He was one of those kind of guys that you knew that he worked hard, rough. uh, He he worked a hard and rough, tough job his entire life, fishing is one of the toughest jobs you could have in that culture. Fishermen were looked down upon. They were looked at as a a low class of the society. Uh, They were, you know, the blue collar of that time and of that culture. Uh, It's not to say that they were uh, not intelligent individuals. I do believe there was great intelligence amongst that uh, demographic. However, though, most of them were not schooled officially. And so it was the school of hard knocks that they attended. It was the school of learning by doing and getting your hands dirty. It was the school of life that prepared them for life. And being a fisherman in that culture meant that your father was a fisherman prior to you. And your uncles were probably fishermen. Your brothers were probably fishermen. Your grandfather was probably a fisherman, and it kept going on. This was a family tradition. This was their identity in their culture. There was a pride about their fishing. Uh, There was an expertise considered in their fishing, that they saw themselves as ones that knew the lake and uh, and the fishing area better than anyone else in the entire region. and peter's looking at this politic uh, politician who's a carpenter not a not a fisherman and uses the word master here and it is very uh possible to tra- translate this as boss or chief and being from chicago i hear it this way <laughs> listen chief I'll go out there if you want me to, but it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's senseless to do so. Is the attitude and the tone that we get from what Peter is saying and re- how he's responding to Jesus. Well, Why is he responding that way? Fishing took place at night in that culture. The reason being is because of the heat. The Galilean region is a very tropical region because of where it is located in the rift of the valley in which it is located. So during the day, it can become very, very warm. So the fish go very, very deep to keep cool from the sun. And so being 1,200 feet to net fish in that kind of depth is almost impossible at that time because they just didn't have the equipment necessary to do it. During the night, the fish would come to the surface. I'm probably giving you way more fishing information than you would need. And the reason they came to the surface is because it was cooler. And secondly, because the bugs would land on the, on the water. And that's what the fish ate. So the fishermen would go and they would fish all night. As Peter had said, we've been out all night. We're going to find that just a minute. We haven't caught anything And that's the optimal time. That's the time that you should do it. I'm a fisherman. I've been doing this all my life. My dad's been doing it. My uncles have been doing it. My grandfather's been doing it and so forth. And if anybody knows this lake, it's me. So listen, chief, I'll do this. But listen, this is, I don't believe this is going to work out. Verse 5. And Simon answered, he said, master, boss, chief, we've toiled. Meaning we've labored all night. And took nothing. It's emphatic. It was uh, uncommon. It was uh, a night that they completely got skunked, undoubtedly preparing for this moment with Jesus. But Peter says, At your word, I will let down the nets. And scholars debate, grammatical scholars debate if Peter is acknowledging an authority in the word of Jesus at this point which would be right for him to do so or is he saying, if you say so. Chief, if you say so, we will go out and I'll do as you ask me to do. With a degree of skepticism and uh, caution and you know, pessimism all wrapped into one as Peter now ventures out into an area of the sea that he knows during the day is unproductive when it comes to fishing. But he was obedient. He was obedient first to just push the boat out a little ways to let Jesus teach, and now he's obedient a second time to take the boat out even farther to see if the word of the Lord would come to pass. And in verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Now let us understand that the 1,200 foot depth where they would be lying would be inaccessible, or they couldn't uh, obtain that kind of depth with their nets and so they were still fishing towards the surface during the day which was you know, something that just didn't occur. It was completely unnatural for fish to be in that location at that time. And that's why, because of the large number of fish that they caught at that time and causing the nets to break, meaning they just couldn't hold all that they had caught, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. So they signal to their partners, this is interesting because it is partners in business and it appears they were partners with John's and, John and James, the son of Zebedee who is a well-known wealthy man, had one of the largest fishing industries at that time in that region. And of course this is John and this is James who end up also following Jesus. Come on out guys, there's too much for all of us. I mean there's enough for all of us. Come on out and they, the rest of them came out and they all shared in this incredible reaping a blessing that God had provided for them. And they came, filled both of the boats, and so that they began to sink. And when Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Kyrios, God. Why did this abundance of fish lead Peter to recognize Jesus as the Messiah? Now later in his confession of Jesus being Messiah with the other disciples Jesus says it's not flesh and blood that has revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven above. So we want to give that credit where that credit should be placed. But the Luke is writing here specifically that the abundance of fish, this miracle that had taken place, was sufficient for Peter to uh, to recognize and to understand that this is no mere politician standing on my boat. He is someone special, unique. Forgive me. Peter asking for forgiveness, showing a complete Uh, act of humility and saying, I am a sinful man. And by saying that in the manner in which he does, he is saying, I am one of those individuals that have no right to be around you. I'm on the outskirts of society because of my thinking and my behavior. I'm a man who has no business interacting with you. In that culture, those who were considered sinners were those who were prostitutes and tax collectors and those who uh, lived contrary to the law. Peter's identifying himself as one of those men. And I don't believe that history tells us that Peter at any time visited a prostitute. I'm not saying that. He was a happily married man with children, the historians tell us. But he saw the wickedness of his own heart before the Lord. He realized that the only adequate response to what has just occurred was to repent. But why the fish? Why the abundance? Why, what triggered this in Peter's mind? And I wondered about that as I was considering this this week. And I thought to myself, I thought about all the Old Testament examples that Peter would have been very familiar with at this time. Moses providing the manna for the people in the wilderness. Of course, it was God who provided it. It was Moses who petitioned for it. But one historian wrote, Craig Evans, he wrote something that two of the most popular figures in that culture at that time in this area was Elisha and Elijah. Because they talked to common people. They interacted with the common people of that society. And in both cases, through their ministry, they had unique opportunities to provide something through the Lord for people who were in need. Now remember... How many fish did Peter catch all night? None. I think of the woman who came out, Elijah sitting under the tree, and he says, bring me a a glass of water. He wasn't being rude or condescending. It was just culturally appropriate for him to ask someone in the vicinity for a, a glass of water. It was part of their hospitality towards one another to do so he says, also bring me a little bit of bread, if you will. And she says, I'm sorry, sir, but we have very little flour. And I have barely enough to make some for myself and my son. And even after that, even after we eat that, we don't have anything further. And we're probably going to die anyway. Elijah said, okay, go ahead. And the flour that you do have, if you will make me this little cake, this little bread... God will provide for you flour until it rains again. They were in a time of famine. They were in a time of drought. And sure enough, the the woman had enough flour to provide for her and her family until it rained. God provided for her need. When it came to Elisha, Elisha, one of the prophet's widows, after the pro- another prophet had died, came to Elijah and said, Elisha, excuse me, and said, listen, they're coming, the debt collectors are coming to take my children to become slaves because we have nothing to pay the debt in which we owe to them. And therefore, my children are going to have to go into the debtor's prison and be slaves until that debt is paid off. So Elisha asks her, well, what do you have in your home? She says, we have absolutely nothing. All I have is this one little tiny flask of oil. That's all I have. He said, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to go and to ask all of your neighbors for as many vessels as they have that are empty, that you can borrow. And I want you to bring that, I want to have them brought to you and I want you to fill them with that little flask of oil. And so as a vessel kept arriving, they would keep filling it up from this little vessel, and God provided enough. And now after she had gained all these vessels of oil, he said to her, now go and sell that oil and pay off your debt, and God has taken care of you. God has provided. The reason that these two were such figures in that culture and that society during the time of Peter is remember that Peter and others, they would work so hard each and every day. They would labor constantly. And yet they were under a weight of oppression from the Roman Empire and the taxes that they were paying were almost as high as we pay here in Illinois. And if the taxes couldn't be paid, the Romans would confiscate animals, but more specifically, children, to pay out the debt in one form or another. And apparently by Jesus doing this, Peter remembered Elijah. Peter remembered Elisha. Peter said, knew that God had done that through them as prophets, and now this individual did it in and through himself. Oh Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinful man. And Peter's humility was the strongest point on his resume to allow God to use him as God used him to become one of the great apostles of the early church. God doesn't use perfect people, does he? He uses ordinary people. Peter made all kinds of mistakes, including rebuking Jesus, which was one of my favorite occurrences. Peter had the gift, the spiritual gift of what I call foot in mouth. And Peter constantly seemed to overestimate his own abilities and underestimate the wisdom of God and Of course, we had that time where Peter, you know, says, Lord, if everyone else denies you, I will never, I will die with you. You big, you know, I'll die with you, Lord. And then he was confronted by one of the most fearful individuals and creatures of our society, a tiny girl. (laughs) And he denied the Lord openly. Peter wasn't perfect, was he? In fact, at the end of it all, Peter went back to fishing after the Lord had died and was put into the grave. And in fact, it was Peter that the Lord wanted to address first to restore him and to have him brought back to that place that Jesus needed him to be brought back to by asking him three times as Peter denied him three times. Now the Lord's asking him three times, do you love me? I love the fact that God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. It's not what we bring to the table that's important to God. It's our heart that he's looking for. Jesus knew all the flaws that Peter had at that moment, and all the difficulties that Peter would cause him over the, over the year, and uh, and so, and all the things that he would have to correct, including, you know, healing some man's ear that Peter decided to whack off. I, I love that Jesus took. The, I mean, Peter took the sword to defend his Lord there in the garden against the temple troops. And out of all of the guards, all of the soldiers that were there, Peter decides to tackle and attack one of their ears. Whoops, I missed. Jesus heals that man of Peter's zealousness. But the humility that Peter expresses here is a humility that I believe each and every individual that has truly had an encounter with God will demonstrate within their life. I believe that when we come to the reality of who God is and who we are in his perfection and in his majesty, I don't believe that there's any other reaction that we can have but to humble ourselves before him and say, oh, woe is me. That's why I have a great difficulty when I see Christians who walk in this constant attitude of arrogance. I have to wonder, do you really know Jesus? Not that I'm humble all the time and proud of it, but the point is is that pride is absolutely the slippery slope that leads to the fall. And Peter struggled with pride. But I think of King Uzziah in Isaiah when he saw the Lord of glory. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. John, in the book of Revelation, fell down at his feet. What reaction should we have in the light of the majestic holiness of God? And I believe at that moment the fear of the Lord came upon Peter's heart. He confessed, he repented before Jesus and let's see how Jesus responded to one who humbles himself before him. As the partners came out And as Peter confessed in verse 8, we pick it up in verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at his amaze. An extraordinary thing had just taken place. They were silenced in their awe of what had just happened. That's what he's saying here. At the catch of the fish that they had just taken. And James and John, of course, who are also disciples of Jesus or will become disciples of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee. Who were partners with Simon, came and they helped and they were part of what had just happened. And notice what Jesus says to Simon here in verse ten. And Jesus said to Simon, "Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men." You know, a fisherman had unique skills, patience. They had, uh, they were, they would persevere. You know, they call it fishing for a reason because there's no guarantee that you're going to catch anything. I enjoy fishing a lot. I, I often wonder after I go sometimes why I enjoy it when I get skunked. Or on the first cast, I throw my lure and I try to get this real cool trick shot underneath the tree and I go right into the tree. And I'm pulling it and the tree is waving like this and all the little kids are laughing at me on the other side of the lake, you know. But they do have an extraordinary perseverance. They're hard-working individuals. They're willing to do what it takes to get the job done. And undoubtedly, all that came to play in the life of the apostles. Seven out of the 12 were known fishermen at that time, which I think is very interesting. But Jesus says to him, I don't want you to be afraid. And in the Greek, it is the word for one who is currently very fearful and he is trying to ease that fear. God desires us to fear him, reverence him, respect him. But it is not fear that God desires the basis of our relationship to be based upon. It is love. God wants us to love him as he loves us. And so Jesus calms his heart and says, Now I will make you a catcher of men. Catching them alive. Further proclaiming the gospel not only to Israel, but to the, all of the known world. We know that Peter made it as far as Italy, outside of uh, the Sea of Galilee, the region of uh, Galilee, And God used him gratefully. He wasn't perfect, but God used him greatly in his humility. And now he becomes a follower of Christ, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I want to answer a question this morning that I've now received twice in one week. And that is... The issue of Jesus being a Savior and Jesus being a Lord. Can we be a Christian and only acknowledge Jesus as our Savior and yet not submit ourselves to His Lordship? It is a question that I'm very surprised is coming back. This goes back to an argument that came out all the way through uh, in the 80s through the free grace movement of the 80s. And yet, I'm just kind of baffled that we're talking about this again. And I say to them very clearly, Jesus can't be divided. Yes, he is our Savior, but he is also our Lord. And a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, will submit themselves to the authority of God. That authority is displayed in his word. And yes, we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that one can truly be saved if they only see Jesus as their savior and have no desire to live as Christ calls them to live. Why do you say that, Eric? Because Jesus says, if you truly love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, am I advocating a works-based relationship? No, I'm not. But I am advocating what James advocated that true faith will manifest itself in the life of a believer through the works in which they do. Not that their works save them, obtain salvation or maintain salvation, but one who is truly born again will have a new nature that desires to be obedient to the word of God, to the spirit of God, to the Lord. Now this then enters into a second portion of that question that I think is also uh, relevant for our discussion this morning. Is there a difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and a disciple of Jesus Christ? This is what I call Western culture semantics. When we talk about a disciple of Jesus Christ, normally I've found that many of us in the American church think of the 12 apostles, and say, that's a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's inaccurate. They were disciples first, and then they were given the office of apostleship later. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ. We are all who claim to be a believer are a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is a disciple? The word is is a derivative of the word discipline. And so not only do we read and believe but we also look to follow and to imitate the one in whom we're following in and through our lives and so as i follow jesus christ i'm also called to imitate christ act as he would act think as he would think uh live as he would live and so forth Discipleship is not only learning facts academically, but learning wisdom through the application of that, wisdom, that knowledge in my everyday personal life with the Lord. Therefore, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ are disciples in Jesus Christ. Because again, God has not asked us simply to believe academically. He's asked us to follow him, hasn't he? It's an action. It's a verb. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after me. And so as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that the mindset of being a disciple begins with these words that we find here in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Paul the apostle writing to the Gentile church in the book of Colossians made it abundantly clear that one who is a believer in Jesus Christ must hold Christ in a place of preeminence within their lives. He's on the throne. He is what matters. He is number one. I am a servant of His, which your Bibles will say bondservant. Some say slave. The word is doulos in the Greek because I have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am no longer my own. I am His. It is Christ now living through me. And then everything else is prioritized after making him Lord of my life. Holding that place of preeminence. One said it this way, and I don't remember if it was Spurgeon or Tozer. There's only one throne in your heart. Who is sitting on it? It's only one of two individuals. It's either you or it's Christ. Today in America, we want to believe that Christianity is a mere supplement that we add to our life, that we call upon to make us happy and healthy in our times of need. But biblical Christianity says, no, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. Biblical Christianity says, leave everything behind and follow after me. Biblical Christianity tells me that Jesus Christ must reign supremely and in preeminence in the throne of my own heart, And therefore, the beginning of each and every prayer should begin as he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Discipleship is not something that happens overnight. It's a modeling of him through our entire lives, and it is a lifelong process in our lives. Through the discipleship and growing in maturity in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we more than reflect the image of Christ in our life. Now, we never graduate. We'll never be perfect. You know, I, you're not going to go to Hallmark and find I'm sanctified today card. It's a work in progress. And that's what we all are. We are all a work in progress through the grace of God. One wrote this way. He says discipleship means being like Jesus by growing in stature and in favor with God and man. Discipleship is a lifelong process, one without graduation that sets you up as a master to be followed. Christian discipleship is always discipleship of Jesus and his kingdom, meaning he's always the Lord. It never becomes us. Sometimes we make things more complicated than the Bible does, but I don't think it is a popular message to say, listen, it's not all about you anymore as a Christian. It's all about Him. And as a result, if one truly interacts with Christ properly through His Word, and I believe this can be obtained through His Word, there are times that I think we are going to be in His Word, reading and in prayer, and our only reaction that we can respond by is, Lord, forgive me, I am a sinful man. That's the only way to react to a perfect, holy, majestic God who loves you the way He does.